good. Right here in London's East End. I'm reading at any level, any time, anywhere, and with anybody. Who are they? One might be your secretary, your doctor's receptionist, or a dancer in a go-go club. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Now, now, now. Hello and welcome to Eastcast here on Resonance 104.4 FM. We are here as usual to look at the arts, the culture and the people of East London, um, but the stuff that uh, will resonate far beyond. So wherever you're listening, good to have you with us. I'm Nia Charpentier and I'm here with Pearl Wise and Julia Lorca. Hello everyone, we have another great show coming up for you. For example, we'll be taking you with us to the Festival of Imagination. And hello from me, we have uh, live in the studio a band, Georgia Fair, joining us for a live session later. And we'll be hearing about a verbatim play called Rehome, visiting a play called Home that was set in a housing estate in Leighton, which has been since knocked down. And we'll also be hearing another Arrival to London story from an ongoing audio series about migration called Something to Declare. And first up with us in the studio is Marielle Jeter, who's a curator at the Museum of London and uh, getting ready for a really big exhibition this summer all about the Great Fire of um, London of 1666. Um, great to have you with us Thank on the you. show. Great to be here. Thank you. Um, so when I was uh, researching into, into questions for, you know, to ask you tonight, um, I was struck because the, the Great Fire, it sort of embedded itself into nursery rhymes. It's it's almost as if it didn't really happen. It's almost like it was a fairy tale. But, you know, so just remind us, you know, what, what impact did it have back then in London? I mean, it had an enormous impact. I mean, it started on the 2nd of September, 1666. And over the next four and a bit days, 80% of the city of London, so that's the bit inside the ancient city walls, burns down, plus a little bit outside of, of that area. Um, we've got about 80,000 people being made homeless. Um, it takes about 50 years to rebuild the city to completion again. So it, it has an enormous impact on the capital and the lives of people who experienced it. Mm. And um, was there a sort of a big responsibility um, in bringing to life such a famous historical event? Definitely. And I think one of the responsibilities that I felt was that we really have to make it personal and to showcase the eyewitness accounts and of the people who actually lived through it and what they thought of it. Because I think that's one of the things that, like you say, it's, it's almost become a myth or a fairy story um, to show that there are actual real people and we've got the letters that they wrote to their relatives telling them what's happened in the fire. We're going to be displaying those and you can listen to extracts. So we're trying to make it as real as we possibly can. And also we've got the archaeological evidence that have been excavated over the last few years in, in London. Um, that's the quite amazing thing that you have this layer, they call the, it the fire horizon. As you dig oh. down through the layers of London history, you get this burnt debris and in that is all sorts of daily belongings of people that they lost in the fire you can see the effect of the fire all these things are kind of melted and warped and damaged um so we're going to display that as well so this is new stuff you know fairly recent 
stuff that you're you're going to be showing the public. The yeah, time. I mean, one of the excavations is fairly well known. That's from the 1979, but um, we're going to be showcasing some objects um, from more recent excavations that haven't been seen before. So excavations in 1990. Um, and 1995, excavated by Museum of London Archaeology. Um, and they're absolutely fascinating. We've got um, a cellar that were of a burnt-out house and they found nearly 200 pieces of ironwork inside. So it's probably an ironmonger's stock that he lost in the Great Fire. Mm. And they've all melted. And sometimes it can be hard to understand what the objects are because they just look like sort of rusty lumps. Mm. But when you excavate them you can see what's underneath all the corrosion. So we're going to be showing those objects with their x-rays in the exhibition. So you'll be able to press a button to reveal the x-ray so you can kind of explore the object. That's brilliant. So has this been a long time coming? And what is the process of putting on a, a show like this? Uh, yeah, we've been discussing um, this exhibition for a long time. We've probably been working on it um, for about a year now. Um, so you, all sorts of processes go into it, so obviously researching the history of it, um, bringing out new aspects, uh, looking through our own collection to find out you know, what have we got, um, going through our archaeological archive, which is probably my favourite thing, is rummaging through the boxes and pulling out things going oh my gosh look at this it looks doesn't look like it should because it's all melted and weird um and having lots of lots of discussions about content and and the different stories that we want to pull to the fore um to tell the the whole story of the fire and you're um quite focused on medieval and post medieval period what is it about this particular time that fascinates you i think those two periods um are so interesting because you've got the mixture of archaeology but you're starting to get lots of documentary evidence as well so you can merge them together to tell a fuller picture of what was happening in the past. Um, I mean, I studied um, archaeology at university and I mainly did sort of uh, Roman archaeology and particularly when you're talking about Roman Britain, there's not an awful lot of documentary evidence. It's what's happening. It's all in the ground and you have to kind of piece it together as best you can. Whereas if you go further forward in time to the medieval and post-medieval period, you've, you've got that documentary evidence combining with the archaeology. Can I just ask, for those of us who are asleep during our history class, <laughs> <laughs> what happened? What, can you just um, give us very briefly what, happened what what the fire of london how it happened what 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 was it so it's, it starts in thomas farriner's bakery in pudding lane uh, we don't actually know why it starts um it's probably an accident he claimed that all the fires in his oven in his oven and in his house were out apart from one that was just smoldering and he said you know it couldn't possibly be his fault it must be arson but then i imagine if a fire started in your house and it burnt down a significant part of london you might try and get out of it um owning up to any sort of blame as well um so, yeah, we don't know for sure um, why it starts, but it does in his bakery, probably a spark falling out of an oven or a fireplace and setting light to wood nearby. And the area that it starts in London is full of warehouses containing really combustible things like barrels of alcohol and tar and um, bales of hay and poles of rope and things like that. Um, Lots of wooden houses built very close together, narrow streets. So it's really the worst place in London at the time for a fire to start. 
combined with the fact there was a storm wind blowing in from the east, so huge gales propelling the fire across the city. And it starts at one o'clock in the morning when everyone's asleep. So it takes a while for everybody to kind of get their act together and start fighting it. And most people saw it as this huge inferno that they could do nothing about and they packed up their belongings and ran away. Um, and so you've, you've touched on a few things, but what can people expect from the show? Well, we want it to be quite immersive and theatrical. So when you walk into the exhibition, we've got a kind of um, reconstruction of Pudding Lane as it was in 1666. Then you'll walk down into a bakery and you'll see the fire start. And then we've, we've got, um, it's a bit surreal, this bit. It's, it's like a giant oven and you go inside <laughs> and you will watch the fire spread across London, across the map of London day by day. So you'll get a sense of the time and the different things that happen each day. And then you'll walk out into the main body of the exhibition and that's all about the evidence for the fire. So the archaeology, the paintings that we have in our collection that uh, show the fire, um, letters, books, that kind of thing. And we've also got loads of lovely objects that either represent objects that were saved from the fire that we know about from accounts or are reputed to have been saved themselves. Um, so looking at, you know, what did, what did Londoners value at the time? What did they want to, to mm. keep safe from the fire? Then once you and we're going to in that section there'll be a huge moving backdrop of London ablaze. That'll be really dramatic. You really feel like you're almost like an eyewitness yourself to this disaster. And then be, moving beyond that the section um, is all about the aftermath. So London in ruins, the fate of the homeless people living in tents in the fields just outside the city. You know how do they re rebuild their lives? the different groups of people who were blamed for starting the fire. And then we'll move into the, the rebuilding of London. How did they decide to, you know, in what method to rebuild the city? Mm. Um, and then finally finishing up with the completion of St Paul's Cathedral in 1711. Wow, so quite a lot to, yeah, takes you through the whole yeah. journey of it. Um, and moving into current day London, is there a, what, what you know, as, as a curator of the Museum of London, what is it that you particularly like or dislike about this city <laughs> <laughs> i guess things that i love about london is the that history mm. and it can be around any corner and i love the juxtaposition between the kind of really modern buildings and then you right next door you've got something that's really ancient mm. so like the tower of london just sitting there and once it was this enormous building that towered over the city and now it's this it's sort of dwarfed by all the, the big tower blocks around it. And near the Museum of London, we've got sections of the ancient city walls, sort of ruined bits, again, right next to all these modern office blocks. Mm. So it's quite amazing. You can walk through and discover all these things. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming in and, and telling us about the exhibition. So it's uh, on from the 23rd of July, um, but you can book your tickets online now if you go to museumoflondon.org. Marielle, thank you so much for coming Pleasure. in. Pleasure, thank Best you. Best of luck with the exhibition. Thank you. Thank you. And on to modern-day tower blocks, um, I met up with playwright and producer Cressida Brown and the cast of her latest play at the Yard Theatre called Rehome. It's a verbatim play about... Well, actually, I'll let them tell you in their own words. I suppose to me the play, in a few words, is about 
former residents of three 20-storey tower blocks. In Leightonstone that was pulled down. A load of characters on an estate in East London. The Beaumont estate. Pop, pop, pop. Displacement. Yeah, loss of community. It's a verbatim piece. About their experience living on this estate. Or the theatre maker looking at that loss of community going back ten years. Now that it's been pulled down. Provides a bit of a challenge to preconceived conceptions of what that means and, and actually whether or not it's a negative in the way that you, you might think it is. The name of the play is Rehome. And that's partly because the first play 10 years ago was called Home. So in a way it's about replying to Home in the sequel, but it's also because a lot of the people that I originally interviewed 10 years ago were rehoused and rehomed. I was in year nine and he was in year seven and he was like, I'm from Beaumont, man, I'll smash your head in. Oh, oh shit. Yeah. yeah, I had as much backup as I wanted. Like, people come up to me, they're like, oh, you're from Beaumont. I was like, yeah. My name's Cressida Brown and I'm the Artistic Director of Offstage Theatre. This is what Bob could do. And this whole thing, this whole area thing is due to the It was completely random and it was actually somebody else's idea. It was the, the first play that I'd ever directed and I decided for some unknown reason that I wanted to do a site-specific play. Um, but I wanted to do it in a flat and I wanted to do a bond play, a very violent bond play. And the man at the council said to me, you know, why don't you use these uh, tower blocks that are being decanted at the moment, people being vacated. But he said, they've got enough violence, why don't you actually interview the people who live there or have lived there and create a play that goes on site specifically around one of the towers. So what's weird about that is that's been my practice ever since. So I always interview people and those interviews of whatever community it is, whether it's former Olympic swimmers or whether it's uh, watermen on the Thames, um, I always use interviews to create site-specific work. So it's very much about kind of deep research. This play, however, is it's absolutely word for word what the people have said. And also what I have said, because my questions become quite important in the piece as well, as a kind of intruder. And not only that, but actually the design, at one point we have kind of graffiti that covers the stage, but those are actually all the real drawings that the kids drew 10 years ago. So everything about the production in terms of the words and the visuals are completely true, but you're made very aware that there are actors performing these roles or these characters or these people. Hello. That's <laughs> <laughs> one of my actors. <laughs> um, my name's Waleed Actor, and I am an actor, so that's quite handy. So I'm Rose Riley, I'm one of the actors. I'm uh, Hassan Dixon, I'm another of the actors. Um, so I'm Tania Miller, I'm one of the actors. My favourite character, I've got a few actually, I think has to be Sandra, who's um, one of the old people. I, I don't play her. Yeah, because she, she is just a, a real character. One of her not lines that she quotes, <laughs> she says, Oi, Greenickers! And they're just, the, the couple of them are really... Uh, really saucy and naughty and they're like although they're you know knocking on 70 they're like five-year-olds they're just and then nancy sucks oh <laughs> gosh nancy we don't see enough of her i don't think in this play but the little that we do see is just such a delight it's i like nancy as soon I mean, as Hassan started character. playing nancy yeah. this um 69 year old woman it was like oh 
ideal casting. <laughs> From the minute we saw him do that, it was that's like, the that's the only thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true. Because it's literally the only thing that people have said, isn't it? Yeah. After coming out of the show, yeah. that's the only thing they say to me. <laughs> you should play 69 year old women a bit more, more often. often. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I mean, the nice thing was when we um, uh, got involved with the play, none of us had been cast as any of the parts. So when we workshopped the play, we played all the characters, didn't we? So I. Like a bit of fight yeah yeah right. yeah and then we got casters who um crest thought we would fit yeah. in and all that sort of stuff but uh, you know everyone does a great nancy so across the board so that was the one we were duking it out for and hassan won <laughs> a funny thing is we've had people who think they know the people yeah. so they've come up to us and said oh look but and then we're like no actually that's a generation a generational different like who you're talking about to who yeah. we're playing yeah because these People are recognised by everyone almost as well. Yeah, like you, everyone knows a kind of. They fit into certain yeah. archetypes, don't yeah. they? It's, it's, it's and everyone kind of feels like they know someone. They're like, oh, is that that person over there? And you're like, actually, it's not. But yeah, so you, mm. if you come along and watch it, you kind of feel like you've met these people because they're real East East London. Well, like you say you met these people if you're from that world. If you're not from the world, I don't know if you have met these people. You might have seen them on your TV screen. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting doing this kind of work because you always kind of feel a bit of a voyeur or you're prying. And actually, the way that we've staged the play now very much kind of questions documentary theatre and who's actually watching and who is it for. I found there was a difference interviewing people 10 years ago on Beaumont Estate and interviewing people now. 10 years ago, incredibly notorious estate for kind of gang violence um, and in fact, very much a no-go area. And yet the people I encountered, I'd have long, hour-long conversations with them where actually I'd film them as well and really get to know their lives. And they would then introduce me to their friends because it was a, you know, a community where everyone lived on top of one another. So it was actually quite easy to get interviews uh, 10 years ago. Now it's been a lot harder and it's kind of been, uh, <laughs> it's funny because I'm now dashing around with an audio recorder um, trying to get snippets of people because a lot of the community has actually just evaporated completely. So it's, it's been a very different experience, but what's been really exciting is re-meeting the people that I interviewed 10 years ago. The story actually focuses on a couple of 10-year-old boys that I interviewed 10 years ago who are now 20, 21. And the reason that we focused on them is because it was actually those boys that the towers coming down was supposed to be a new start. You know, it was supposed to get them out of gangs in the future. And it's been quite a sad story for a lot of them. One of the boys actually died, which has become the central piece of the play. It's been quite an emotional experience for them and for me, I think, some of them revisiting what's actually happened for the last 10 years. We've got a huge, very generous subsidy to get residents over and watch the play, which has just been fantastic. They bring such a vibe when they come down. You can tell when they're in the audience, they're really kind of engaged with it. I think on a on a complete different level as well because they know the places we're talking about, the people. After the show, we've all had someone come up to us and said, you're that character, aren't you? I recognise you. And we're like, we can't say anything. Them coming, like they're the ones that, that don't... Ha- you totally seem yeah. to validate yeah, it. They're, they're the ones that don't yeah. seem to have any problem with it. They're, yeah. they're the ones that actually really enjoy it. Yeah. Um, so that's yeah. interesting. So if you're making a piece of theatre for a specific group 
and they love it. And that that group love it, then I think you're onto a winner, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You go in with an agenda, and in the end, a lot of the people wanted to talk about this one boy's death. And you think, well, I've just pitched to the Arts Council, it's got to be about this or that. But then you realise if that's what their community is, and that's what they want to talk about as much as the tower's coming down, then it's their story, it's not mine. There's a lot of positive stories. So one of the interesting ones is one of the boys I interviewed 10 years ago is now a scaffolder. So he builds buildings. So there's a kind of nice cyclical nature to it. And I wonder what would happen in another 10 years <laughs> if I come back and make the uh, the trilogy. <laughs> I probably can't get out of it. I've had a long love affair with Beaumont Estate now. <laughs> that's That's it. <laughs> So the play Rehome actually got nominated for two offies, um, including one for Best Production and Best Ensemble. But unfortunately, because our show is monthly, the play's actually already finished. Um, it finished last week. But um, Cressida Brown is now working on something called Septimus Bean and, the, and His Amazing Machine at the Unicorn Theatre. And it's a special production for the under sixes, so I'm quite intrigued to see... Um, what that'll be like. And um, the Yard Theatre is always a good place to go for interesting new uh, playwrights and theatre um, in Hackney Wick. And they've got a fascinating new production uh, by Deborah Pearson called Made Visible. And it's about how you justify and talk about being white and privileged, turning questions about ethnicity on their head. But I think this this style of verbatim theatre is kind of... It's really interesting taking real words and, and, and interviewing people and then bringing that into a story, I think. Definitely. We've talked to people on this show before. Um, it, you know, uh, we had one example, Big House, uh, where it was care leavers who, who... So it was kind of a cross between a sort of social project or a charity and actual entertainment, you know, serious entertainment. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting combination. Yeah, and there was a social element to this. They invited, you know, there were places, subsidised places for all the people on the Beaumont Estate to actually come and see the play. Mm. And um, I think that's really important because it's their words, they're featured mm. and, you know, and actually they they really enjoyed it and didn't see it as kind of, you know, something off-putting. They, they, they enjoyed seeing these characters that they were so familiar with mm. on the stage. So for a complete change of tone, um, we now have in the studio with us uh, Jordan Wilson and Benjamin Riley of Georgia Fair. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for being here. Um, We're going to talk to you a little bit and find out who you are and what you're up to. Um, But first of all, you're going to play us a song. What what are you going to play first? Uh, This song's called Break. Okay, take it away. Do 
So you're both from Australia, yes. But Ben, you're kind of not from Australia. <laughs> not really. <laughs> I've been from Australia for the last fifteen or sixteen. Confused years. identity. Yeah. Mm. I'm very I, confused I you. human. Um, so you actually came back to kind of rediscover your family and, and rediscover Britain. And uh, mm. Jordan, you followed. Yeah, we followed each other around a little bit because <laughs> we sort of uh, been writing songs together for a while. So you got to together yeah. yeah I mean I could hear that there's there's def- there's a kind of playfulness between you you're obviously there's this kind of call and answer thing going yeah. on which is really interesting and so you've known each other what since like high school or something? pretty much yeah. yeah early high school yeah and um so you've released what two albums now yeah we've done two albums we're working on our third at the moment yeah so how's that different working uh in London so you've come here to kind of record your album yeah well, we sort of, uh, you know, we've always travelled around a little bit. We kind of um, 
we like to make our albums in different places, really. We did a couple in America, and um, it's always good for us to get out of our comfort zone. It helps us sort of create, you know. Yeah. But London's, yeah, it's been, it's been really impacting us. It's quite an intense city, so you get that, that feeling, you know. So have you noticed, uh, your, has your songwriting kind of been influenced by the more kind of busyness and the, the kind of stressful life <laughs> of London? Yeah, we sort of, we've sort of always felt that, I think, <laughs> as musicians. But yeah, no, it's, it's, it does, where you are, it just influences you. You can't deny that, you know, there's differences here. Um, yeah, definitely. And you mentioned earlier that this is the first time that you were recording an album yourself. Yeah, well, we've been lucky to work with some pretty amazing producers, but we picked up quite a, you know, a lot of tips along the way. So we just wanted to have a crack ourselves, started recording, and it's it's been working out. So it's fun, you know, it's a new it's a new skill to have. Yeah. Um, I've also noticed there's quite um, so I listened to some of your recent tracks, mm. and that you know, there's there's you seem to be you've got this kind of very folky songwriter mm. singer songwriter vibe going on, and then on the other hand, you've got this quite pumping mm. kind of more rocky pop feel. Yeah. Um, so is that is it something? Is that kind of a new? Uh, path or are you always kind of having both going on it's at a the sort same of time? it's a slight conflict i mean it's 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 when you we're mainly songwriters so that's almost where the folk bass comes in so we've you know focused on that but we've always played in bands and stuff so we can't you know contain ourselves too much um so yeah but we like to sort of show show a bit of the range because we <laughs> we feel both put it that way you know sometimes you just want to kind of let it all go and just have some fun with it yeah and when can we expect this new album? New number album. three, <laughs> album number three. Later in the, this year, yeah. Probably. We, we need a few more nights in the studio <laughs> yeah. at this point. Yes. <laughs> but it's coming together. Yeah. And and have you kind of started trying out the London gig scene? Are you are you doing that that kind of because there really is a path that mm. bands uh, go on in London, and you you see that people doing you know the same kind of, the same pubs and venues. Yeah, and there's a kind of we're still um, uh, we're still breaking into the stream. We're breaking, yeah. yeah, breaking into the scene, you know, slowly yeah. but surely. We've, yeah, yeah, we played a few shows um, towards the end of last year, but um, yeah, it'd be good to kind of we're going to start pushing out. I think once we get. A few songs together. A bit more music together, you know. Yeah, well, we, hopefully we, this will be the beginning of That's that. That's it. This is, this, is one of, <laughs> this is a gig right now. Because, <laughs> I mean, you, you're quite well known in Australia, right? People, you've, you've had some, your, your two albums were really well received. You, you've even got your own Wikipedia page. Oh, man. <laughs> Who bloody wrote that thing? <laughs> we do, actually, yeah. I was quite impressed. I mean. You can get one for us. <laughs> no, exactly. Well, I we mean, can write any, something for any, you if yeah. you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so moving, so no gigs coming up, but we will look out for you. And you know, if people want to, if people like your sound, what what can they do? They just keep an eye. Yeah, on your I mean, we've sort of, we sort of, yeah, we've got a new single coming out pretty soon, and we'll play some shows around that. So mainly Facebook at the moment is where we're kind of putting putting stuff out, and our website. So should we hear another hear another track, another song? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, what are you going to play? This one's called "Slave to Nothing." Thank yeah. you.
It's only getting harder It's only going deeper The hedge is growing taller The maze is growing weaker We're walking on water It's turning to ice. That was Georgia Fair. Thank you so much, Jordan Ben, for joining us in the studio. I have a feeling that London will hear a lot more from oh, you. Thank you. <laughs> Look out. 
You're listening to East Coast Show on Resonance 104.4 FM. Don't forget you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook at East Coast Show. And you can listen again to our interviews and uh, music online on iTunes and at eastcastshow.com or sign up to our monthly newsletter and get all of that straight into your inbox. In last month's show, we told you about an event at Chats Palace in Hackney. The Institute of Imagination ran their first Festival of Imagination there last month. I couldn't resist and went along to explore this creative festival combining art, science and technology. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look and you'll see into your imagination. You're here at the Festival of Imagination. What did you think so far? I, I think it's brilliant. It's all sorts of um, things that you don't normally get to do with the kids. Um, it's like coding and all kinds of interesting things about sound and um, really sort of practical um, applications for science and arts. I have been building a computer. Oh, wow. Was it difficult to build the computer? Yes, it was difficult to build the computer. I had to follow a book of instructions to build it. Is it fun? Yes, it is. <laughs> What's your favourite thing today here at the festival? Uh, this. <laughs> I'm Joanna. I'm head of education at Cano. Cano started in 2013 as a Kickstarter, and the goal is really to help kids understand what's inside of the technology that they consume every day. There's a full platform built on top of the Raspberry Pi, which is a credit card-sized computer with a lot of functionality. So they use the Raspberry Pi, they build a case, they, they plug in a speaker, they hook that up to a screen, they use HDMI cables and power, and they understand all the different components of the system. There's then a full operating system with different apps. So there's Make Minecraft, which is definitely the most popular app on the, on the systems. There's Minecraft, there's Scratch. Um, there's a, an app where kids can create art with code. You can use Sonic Pi to create music with code. So we really aim to not only focus on computer science or coding, but really allow kids to create whatever they want with code and understand that technology is a tool that enables them to do what they want to do with it. So I'm Maya from Fixperts. Um, Fixperts is a social design organisation which acts as an open platform for people to come and um, go through the process which involves finding a fixed partner, them donating to you a problem and you working through prototyping to solve that problem. Uh, today we're here at Chaps Palace and we're running a workshop called um, Empathetic Modelling where we are taping up children's hands, we're taping up lolly sticks to them, and then asking them to conduct a number of daily tasks, like opening a can or buttoning up a shirt. And as they find these difficult, they're designing through sketching and modelling a little tool to help them do it. So we have an example here, which is an elastic band that's looped over the button, and then that was then fastened to a pipe cleaner, and the, the maker was able to push it through the hole and then pull the button through. Then we were also um, having kids wearing really large gloves, which meant it was really, really tricky to, to do the tasks. So one example of these was um, we had a water bottle and we asked them to open, open it with the big gloves. And that was really, really hard. So 
they attached um, a lollipop stick across, creating a, a twisting motion, and they were able to twist that and get some water around the place as well. Um, I think it's great. We came in really early. Uh, we didn't want to be disappointed, and we worked our way through from the noise upstairs to the back room where they had lots of um, imaginative like the brain projects. Yeah, that was very good. So my name's Georgia. I'm part of London Brain Project, which is a public engagement initiative that we set up to try and engage different groups of people with brain science using art. We've got four different stations set up. So in our first station, which goes from birth to two months old, we're trying to sort of get across the idea that babies can only see black and white colours, really, that they're particularly attracted to patterns, which is why we've got all these pattern tapes here. And then we move on to stage two, where colour starts coming into play and you can start to understand depth and things like that, and we start recognising faces. And then you move on to stage three, where you have more cortical control over what you want to look at, so you can kind of choose where your attention goes. And then we move on to the end, where we're kind of expert explorers and we, want, we know where we want to go and we've sort of started crawling and we know what we want to look at. We're trying to do it in a fun, engaging way. So Yeah, yeah the whole table is covered in stickers and colourful paper and Lego and... It's amazing. Yeah, it's nice. At the end of it, they get a little book, their book of vision, and they can take it home. That's quite nice. So we like having a little legacy for the kids so they can sort of reflect and look back on what they've made. Okay. <laughs> so what was that? What have I just been doing? Um, you've just been playing um, a device called an, a Toto, which is actually being controlled by a piece of silver foil that... People touch the small and ambient electrical shot from your body, moves down a wire, hits the Atoto, and the Atoto is programmed to play a sound. So the children draw a monster, put the monster on top of the silver foil, then when they touch their drawing, it makes a monster sound. Sounds like a lot of fun. And who are you and why are you doing this today? Uh, well, my name is Paul uh, Clifford. I'm always happy to show people exactly what technologies can do nowadays. And what was the scariest monster created today? I think it was a 25-eyed spider. <laughs> Scary. But it was just my I do. It started to came alive. Wow. I'm Viola, so I work for the Institute of Imagination and I'm working on the Blippar stand today. So it's an app that you can download for free and you can scan objects that have the have like coding behind it and it will bring the content to life. So there's one where it's just like a plain butterfly and then you can colour it in and then when you scan it and it it will kind of make it come to life on your screen but with all your colouring in so children have been really enjoying it so like their face is like amazed when this butterfly 
butterfly with their design and their that kind of drawing is like flying around the screen. So some are kind of a bit fun, some are educational. So there's one where it's like a painting and you put the app on it and then it will tell you all about that painting and all about that era and lots of different information. So we're running an imagination lab here where children and their families can come and sit down and imagine what they think the future should look like. So it's a moment of imagination where they create their ideal future, they invent something, they make up something that they want to happen in the future, something that they want to make better. So it's all about imagining what what they might want to happen. And then we create a future scenario. So we've got all kinds of cross materials and tactile stuff that they can build with. They can make stuff with clay. And then we make a scenario and we make a, an animation of their ideal future world. And what was your favorite story today? Oh, that's a good one. There were some really beautiful scenes created. I think... Yeah, there were some dragons who were flying um, together and then they came together and they had an argument but then an alien came in. He built some ice castle and then he solved problems between the dragon and the other flying animal. (laughs) So it's a very futuristic scene. Basically the technique you use is just a normal tablet. Yeah. So parents, families could go home and do that on their own. Absolutely, yeah. We use a free app called Stop Motion and that runs on Android and on uh, iPhones and Apple. What was your idea, your vision for this Festival of Imagination? So, I think our vision was really to bring imagination under one roof and to really try out that idea of crossing the, the different disciplines of science, arts, technology. If you look at the activities that we've got here, it all starts with thinking about your imagination, the, whether it be thinking about the future or thinking about your brain or how things function. But then the activities all encourage you then to apply your imagination through creativity to actually make a product or create something that has started in your head as something new, uh, as opposed to maybe a structured activity that's been pre-planned and, and sort of pre-made. I think that's something that we're generating here that's quite unique, is that people come here, they arrive, and they feel like they're can stay for like a few hours. I call it a kind of extension of the home in a way. People feel very comfortable just to come, sit down, spend some quality time with their child. Was the the Festival of Imagination a one-off event or do you have any plans on doing it again? So the Festival of Imagination is uh, a series of ongoing events, residencies, pop-ups that the Institute of Imagination are developing at the moment. As we move towards something much more established, much more um, grounded in London, a dedicated space where the Institute can can live and be. Just my Accessible, inspiring, different. Creative, different, and or imaginative. Creative, imaginative, holistic. It's fun, it's imaginative, and it's family friendly. Imaginative, yeah, creative, fun. Absolutely, I hope it will become sustainable and that you have more of these imagination festivals around the country that will be fantastic. there was a festival of imagination and I have to be true and it's really was such a comfortable atmosphere there and it gave parents and children room to explore their imagination but also to solve practical problems and I really liked the 
different activities that people could try and it wasn't too packed people could actually take time and try things out and yeah it was really relaxed really fun and I'm really looking forward to all the different activities they have coming up and all the different institutions that joined this event um, they will be all over London and taking part in different festivals and what a, what a great place to hold it as well the Chats Palace is quite a, a magical place I mean it's been you know a bit of a I don't know, it, it, it's, a, it's a community space that's been alive for so long and just bringing different things there, um, like this festival, is, is perfect, I think, because it, it is a really family-friendly um, environment. So thanks, Julia, for that. Um, so after the, uh, for the past few months, I've been working on a project. You've probably, if you are a regular listener to the show, you've probably heard about this before. Um, it's a project called Something to Declare, and it's a collection of recordings of people's arrival stories to London. And it could be their own story, the story of their parents or their grandparents. And the wonderful thing about London is that most people do come from somewhere else and most people do have something to declare. So here is Nafisa's story and I met her at Dalston Library. My name is Nafisa. I'm from originally from uh, Somalia, born in Somalia. We left Somalia when I was a few months old because of the war. So I mainly identify with Kenya because that's where I was brought up and raised before I came to England. I'm 25 years of age. We are six kids, so five boys and myself. Like I said, I was born in Somalia. That was in 1990 and that's when the war broke out. And then we had to flee Somalia and go to Kenya because that's it's just at the border to you know to seek refuge. We were brought up in a small community with to help each other out because we were all in that same uh, situation. My dad, you know, worked hard to ensure that we were comfortable, and my mom did the same. I, you know, I finished my studies there as well. Uh, we were fortunate enough to to get educated. Credit to my father, um, he really worked hard because um, it's you know difficult to get education. So we we were enrolled into uh, luckily private schools. It was also difficult. It's not um, an easy, you know, life. My dad was mainly a businessman, so it's uncertain. Sometimes the business is good, sometimes it's not good. And we have days where we have to be chased out of class because we haven't paid our school fees. So we would stay out in the, you know, in the adverse, whether whether it's raining, whether it's sunny, uh, but we don't get to get sent home. We just stay in the school compound. So, I mean, those are the kind of memories that, you know, I hold dear to myself. And it reminds me of where I've come from. Kenya generally is a good country because if I compare it to Somalia, it's, you know, way better uh, can't complain. It's just, you know, um, it's not as developed, the infrastructure, the health system and schools. But, you know, we did well. So two of my elder brothers, the first one and the second one, had come to this country uh, to seek asylum. They applied for a family reunion um, for us to join them. They were quite young. I think they were just in, in their teenage years when they came here. And the process took a while. It took eight years for for us to you know to to get you know indefinite leave to remain. So um, we lived 
eight excruciating years apart from them, which was mainly difficult on my mom because I can't imagine how she felt. In the end, we, you know, we managed to join them. For so long, we wanted to join them because we wanted to be, you know, as a unit. They were young and I was also young, so I didn't really know the intricate details of how life was here. We were comfortable being in Kenya, but we wanted to be together and we knew that the opportunity was better in terms of education. So we did want to join them and we were eager and we kept praying that, you know, one day it would happen. But when it came to living, because we knew we were leaving our friends, our family, relatives, and, you know, just our identity, because that's where we identify with, it was really difficult quite emotional. I don't have a sister, but I made a friend who's just like a sister to me. So leaving her was just, you know, it was difficult. But at the same time, we were happy. It was nostalgic. We were like, finally, this is happening and we get to reunite with my brothers. So, you know, it was a mixture of emotions, you know, happy and sad. Finally, uh, my my brother's plea to uh, get a, a asylum for us was accepted, and uh, we joined them in um, December of two thousand and eight. So that's when we first came to the UK. My first impressions were: it's definitely lovely. It's it's a clean country, you know. It's well kept and managed. It's it's lovely, the infrastructure, the health system, the educational system, the transport system. It was all amazing. But <laughs> one thing that definitely, you know, you prefer is being back home is the social life. People were very friendly and community oriented. So that was, you know, lacking. And then the other thing was also the weather. But, you know, you adjust and there are also some things that, you know, were, were like a cultural shock that, you know, you weren't expecting to see. But, you know, like people are free to, you know, express themselves and kids were very free and they could speak anyhow to their parents. That's one thing we, we, we'll never dare to, you know, talk back to our parents. So that was a bit like, oh people live like this and yeah I mean uh, kids have a lot of freedom in this country you you can't do that back home and also the amount of freedom uh, people have in terms of following a certain uh, type of sexuality as well that's uh, unheard of back home and if any if it's there it's quite minimal and it's uh, kept a secret uh, but here you're free to express yourself so that was one of the things that I found different. One thing that took me by surprise, Kenya is also a non-Muslim country, but we have a lot of Muslim uh, population, I'd say about 30 to 40 percent. So, you know, it's easier to be a Muslim there because the cost of Kenya was, you know, we had um, Arabs coming by sea, um, Indian Ocean and settling there. So there's a lot of Muslims in the coast. When we came here, we thought it would be difficult. We thought you're going to be isolated, you're going to be looked at as a stranger. But I found it, the Muslims that were here, although they are very little in number, they are quite strong and firm in their religion, and that was really inspiring. There are a lot of, you know, communities, and there are a lot of, you know, small setup. There are a lot of lectures that, you know, are held every now and then, every weekend, where people go and they get that boost. 
and I thought the Muslims here would be more westernized and although there are some that are westernized, the ones that are steadfast were steadfast more than I was and that took me by surprise. It's not easier but it's easier than I thought it would because people are more tolerant. You know, I haven't faced any racism because of my religion. And one thing that I found really beautiful that even in my um, Kenya, I call it my home country, I studied in a non-Islamic school for my primary years and I wasn't allowed to wear a headscarf. But I come here and you're allowed to. So I found that really interesting. Um, we never had like uh, prayer rooms facilities. We have prayer room facilities in airports here in England. We have them in hospitals. We have them in schools. We don't have that in Kenya, although we have, I think it's uh, supplemented by the fact that there are a lot of uh, mosques everywhere, but I found it useful that it's in institutions. When we first came, we lived in West London, so that was in uh, West Kensington. We've been there for seven years. And just recently, the landlord said they're, they're having plans and, re, you know, uh, renovating the place and changing the structure of the building. So we had to be relocated. And uh, we I'm in Hackney now for exactly four weeks. New area, you know, new people, but I quite like it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a bit of a difference. You'll, you'll see more white people in West London compared to here. Uh, it's more diverse in this area, but um, it's quite lovely. We were also a bit reserved because when we first came to England, we didn't hear quite a lot of good things about Hackney. We, we, we heard of, you know, the stabbings and the shootings. To be quite honest, my mom was really scared for her son. Her youngest son is 15. But with time, she's learned that, you know, it's changed. It's so much better. It's so much safer. So, yeah, she, she's also now um, adjusting and adapting well. So, yeah, it's been, it's been an okay um, almost seven years now, yeah, um, in England. So that was Nafisa, who I met at Dalston Library. And all these stories have been embedded into a map, and you can listen um, to more at somethingtodeclare.co.uk. And if you want to record your own arrival story, do get in touch via Twitter at East Coast Show or via eastcastshow.com. And uh, that's it for us. It's time for to say goodbye. East Coast Show will be back next month on Wednesday the 13th of April, same time, same place, with more sounds and stories. We'll leave you with another track from Georgia Fair, who we had live in the studio earlier. This track is called Last Chance. So good night and thanks for listening. <laughs>
guilty of The action of guilt that pushed down from above They kept them in their place So they couldn't see They stole their space Blind as could be Maybe this is my last chance Exactly, I want to see. It is, 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 it is,